I'm John Perry. I'm Ted Cupper. And this is Constellation, making the graphic novel. Join us as we build an original science fiction world. Okay, welcome back to the show, everybody. How are you doing, John? Uh, I'm doing good today, actually. Well, that's good to hear. Yeah, so uh, today is going to kind of put a cap on uh, the sort of season, I guess you could call it, we've been doing uh, of mostly cultural topics. Uh, we're hoping that after today's episode, we're going to get right into the actual plot and outline of the our outlining. story yeah. and characters and like that really, really concrete stuff. We've been sort of going from more zoomed out to more zoomed in, right? We did 10 episodes of natural science rules sort of explaining how the simulation works at the sort of core physics level. And then we've been, you know, we didn't plan it this way, but sort of the last 10-ish so episodes, we've been talking mostly about cultural type stuff. Uh, and today we're going to discuss uh, a timeline that we're building. Um, on our side, we have a, a spreadsheet that we've been filling out with stuff, trying to sort of figure out, you know, what are the different cultural movements in time and how does that all play out? And today we're going to try to summarize that for for you, the listener, uh, and use that as a way to kind of bring this this cultural portion of the podcast to a close. Right, right. So this should be a review of basically all the things we've been talking about the last 10 episodes since we did our big uh, rundown on the, uh, the science rules. And once we're done with this, we're going to move forward, like you said, and, and do some outlining. So... The biggest decision that we made uh, going into this is we had to figure out just for our own sake, even though this is probably never going to be made super clear in the story, uh, like the exact dates of what it is we're talking about. So we could put some numbers on a piece of paper and start working. Right. So uh, after some discussion, we decided that we are going to uh, date the scan itself at January of 2020 for a few different reasons. Do you want to talk about those or shall we just go on uh yeah and i think that, you know between uh you know if, given the amount of time it may take us to finish and release this comic book i mean this date may be subject to change uh but yeah. right now yeah. it it seems like it's gonna we're already trying to write an insanely complicated world that we're devising from scratch so it's like why give ourselves the extra burden of uh starting the story in in the future <laughs> in the real world right because then you know, let's say like the, the scan happens in 2050 or something. Well, then we'd have to figure out what happens in those 30 years of regular human timeline. Right, right. And that just makes our job way harder as writers. So. Right, exactly. It's, it's worth saying, I mean, we've mentioned this on the podcast before, but just in case you forgot, uh, you know, the story takes place some amount of time after the scan, right? So we're not starting the story at the moment of the scan. We are trying to backdate, oh, how long has it been basically since this all happened mm -hmm. and people woke up? So since our story is starting later, you know, and we've been kind of talking about a range of time between sort of 50 and 100 years uh, over the last 20 episodes or so. And we just sort of settled on 75 since that's 50% of the way between those. And that gives a long enough headway that some things like new religions might be able to come up. And that some people might be able to be born and fully raised within the constellation and create some generational conflict. We thought those were interesting things to engage. Uh, but it's not so long that people don't remember. And there are still lots and lots of people who are around who remember the old world. So we wanted to have that as well. Um, 
So, so yeah, so imagine that you're, you know, going about your, your business today in 2020, although maybe imagine that pre-world pandemic. Right. Well, that's uh, why we chose January was like, we didn't want to necessarily deal with the pandemic. Um, and like, we're not going to probably put a date in, like you said, if this gets published in 2025 and the pandemic is a distant memory, um, we would also want you to just sort of assume that, you know, the people we might got set it in 2025, 2025 then exactly well we wouldn't be setting it then but we'd be setting that we'd be placing the scan then yeah right right setting again yeah, yeah. this is all about like the beginning of our timeline like when right now. did the constellation come into being when did the earth get scanned by this ai or alien or whatever it was and get instantiated um uh, right when, into this into this machine when were people going about their business and then all of a sudden they were they were scanned into this this new reality, right? right. The the big transition happens sometime in the twenty twenties, basically contemporary. Exactly. Uh, and yeah. and then our but as you were saying earlier, Ted, uh, our story actually begins about seventy five years after that. Um and yeah, I mean, we've been sort of circling around this number for many, many episodes now saying it would be between 50 to 100 years, 75 is right there in the middle. And um, I remember one of the things we talked about when trying to come up with that number is we were like, well, we want to have religions that are new. How long does it take to start a religion? And so we, right, the we only example Scientology basically we right? had, yeah, <laughs> was Scientology. So <laughs> Scientology has been around for about that long. Yeah, uh, and is some somewhat established at this point. Um, I mean, you know, people still call you it. You can a cult argue or about whatever. that, but it is uh, it it gets tax status anyway. So we thought that was good enough, you know, to to consider. And uh, yeah, so we're thinking that this is long enough for something like a Scientology to emerge and become, you know, like it is today, having buildings and followers and people who've been raised in it. Um, and then, so for what we're going to do for the rest of this um, episode is basically just, we've broken down those 75 years from the scan uh, to the start of the story into 10-ish uh, uh, year chunks. So we're just like, we have decades basically on this uh, chart. And we're just going to go through um, a series of categories that we thought were important and kind of tell you some of the big things that we think are happening in each decade, right? That's right. Yeah. And our categories uh, are not perfect here. So we're just, yeah, we're just going to kind of use them though. Yeah. As a we may do point. kind of go across them and stuff. We're just going to use them as, Absolutely. A, as a, as a reference for ourselves so that we know what we're more or less talking about. So let's, I mean, I think let's get right into it and just talk about, um, you know, the, the big landmark events. I mean, there are some things that they kind of defy categorization because they're just so important. So, um, you know, right away when people get into, this world they're going very quickly they're going to notice uh the regeneration uh default right right so So if you're an amputee your legs start to slowly grow back exactly and we've talked about how that works before um so it's you know basically anything that is non-genetic it has access to your genetic code so it can uh regrow a limb uh restore your eyesight if you uh stared at the sun too long but if you were born blind you're not going to uh suddenly um, have working eyes unless you uh, ask the exec for them. Uh, another thing that would happen in right away is I think a lot of people, and we talked about this, would self de- self delete um, as soon as they realized that they could, and there just would be a number of people for whom this world would not be interesting. Some people are not going to adapt well to mm-hmm. this new reality at all. I mean, this is just. I mean, in some ways, I mean, it depends what you did in your previous life, but. 
I mean, let's say, you know, you were the head of a big company and that was, you felt important doing that. And that was like a big part of your identity. Well, now that's gone like mm. instantly. Right. Mm. And no one cares about that anymore. It mm. doesn't have any power at all. Um, that's just one example, but there might be a lot of people for whom, uh, you know, whatever meaning they had kind of vanished quickly and they're not, you know, quick enough in sort of constructing their own new meaning. And if they realize that they can just ask the exec to delete them, you got to figure some people are going to just blink out of existence in right. that first decade. Well, you're also going to be uh, alone in the Serengeti. And of course, most people will realize that you can see other people, but um, loneliness is very uh, difficult. So if you don't realize that or you don't know how to reach out to the people or if the people that you wanted to reach out to are no longer there, right? Because some people are unlisted or some people are, are dead. Um, well, everyone is listed by default, right? Yes, so but they could be... It they could be not listed, not by default. I mean, it depends how long it takes you to go look. They could hide. Else. They could hide from you, or so. Yeah, it, I mean, I think. So I anyway, guess I'm supposing people most people I'm saying. Uh, would find their friends, but yeah, you might. Again, different people are going to learn this at different rates, exactly. right? I mean, yeah. So uh, if you're profoundly uncurious, you know, and you don't really find out how this stuff works, you might be extremely lonely, and that's one way that you might uh, be driven to self-delete. I mean, if you think of the number of people that, uh, you know, need tech support today, uh, maybe it's actually a lot of people that just like, you know, can't figure out how to do much stuff. Well, like, and don't. I think one thing that we, you know, we've said the exec is fairly rigid. So I don't know, you know, how good it is at sort of providing help to you if you can ask for it. But um, my guess is if you can ask correctly, you can probably get a lot of help. Um, but that might be very hard to do. Yeah, so there's, you know, obviously this first decade is a lot about just people ad adapting. And I think, you know, the fact that some people simply won't adapt and will suicide is a is a big piece of that. Um, right. Now, what are the what are the people that, you know, that do decide to adapt to this, right? They're like, well, I guess this is the new reality. Let's uh, let's make something of it. What are, what are they right. going to so do? So some significant subset of people reach that acceptance point and then they're going to... Um, realize that you know this is a world where we have much more say over how things go than the world we came from i think that's going to be something you're going to realize very quickly so i think the first thing that happens is that m many people start to join um together in order to create you know sort of small scale attempted utopias right like all the ideas that we currently have about how to run society that are hard to instantiate because of path dependence or whatever. Um, all those ideas basically get tried really fast because it doesn't take very many people who are interested in them to find each other and start up a, a world and start putting those ideas into practice. Um, and it, at least at first, I think that that would be, something that would be very interesting to people because they are still thinking of the world in the old terms. So the idea of, you know, trying out, uh, you know, automation socialism or pure libertarianism or whatever it is that you think is going to make the world better would be very tempting to people. What I think it's going to be probably pretty small and provincial. I mean, a lot of this will be driven by yeah. sort of alpha personalities. Yeah. 
that uh, charismatic you know, leaders will go a long way in this first time. Yeah, sure. or even just the most natural leader in your sort of family or friend group, mm-hmm. right? Who mm-hmm. just decides to be the one who's like, "All right, here's what everyone's gonna do." Yeah, right. Uh, we're gonna all go to this one world and let's set it up this way, and everyone is susceptible to listening to that person because you know there's it's kind of a kind of a void of power and leadership at this moment. And so anyone, you know, right. who has thinks they have a good idea might have a better chance of being listened to. Right, right. There's all this like power in the sense of like um uh capacity to do things uh that's just unclaimed. And uh what people will re- quickly realize is you can get, you know, you can just claim this power yourself. And the old power centers don't really matter, exactly. right? I mean, it, it, unless people I mean, and that's an interesting question is like is any of that stuff sticky, right? Like do people you know, would like the old leaders of countries, for example, still command any respect? I mean, they might for oh, a little yeah. while. Oh, yeah, I think they would turn into some of the early Utopia founders, and they would say, oh, now freed of the of the restrictions I had when I was your president or governor or whatever, I can now, um, you know, create an even better society for our nation. And, and many people of that nation would probably join that. Um, you know, I think we're going to assume that these small attempted utopias do not for the most part work because their ideas are all based on the old world and they're going to, no matter which version of this they are, they're going to quickly run into um, the reality that this new world is just very different (laughs) Um, and people are far more empowered and it's a lot harder to hold together a group in the way that one would have in the past. But there's also obviously going to be significant, you know, human nature involved here that people still like to be in groups. So there will be, I think it's a, it's a push pull. I don't think it's like an obvious, complete failure, but I think that these small utopias are going to find that for the most part, their ideas are poorly suited to the um, amount of choice that they have in this world. Yeah, so there's gonna, but there'll be a lot of experimentation and a lot of rise and fall of these different these different projects. Right. Um, when we get into the next decade, uh, this is when people start to realize, like, truly understand that they are now immortal. I think because you know they they probably could have inferred that uh, bef- long before the second decade, just by the you know the fact of regeneration and sure, so on some sort people of would speculate that. it but uh, between sometime between 2030 and 2040 you'd get confirmation that this was true in the sense that most people would know someone who would have otherwise died at this point whether they were very old when they were scanned or whether they um were injured had or terminal illness, had a terminal or... illness or something like that exactly and so that those things would regenerate they would not die um and you know, maybe that would happen in the first two years if your family had an older grandmother, uh, but maybe it would take 15 years before you knew someone like that if you, you know, depending on who you know and, and whatever. But by that and, by that time, everyone would have, I think, confirmation that this was, there was no way, uh, you know, there was no need to die if you didn't want to. And even if it intellectually dawned on you sooner, I think it's different for society to sort of emotionally understand that because you know that's such that's a pretty stark dramatic change from today's world where everyone uh assumes death uh so i think you know it's hard to unpack exactly like what all of the cultural like sort of repercussions are of that i think 
one of them is obviously the the like number of people that we've talked about uh, who'll be joining religions and so on uh, is probably tied to this like radical change in terms of uh, how we perceive death. But um, that's going to be, I think, a a big right. defining aspect of this decade. Right, right, right. Yeah, it will majorly change how people look at religion. It will majorly change uh, how people sort of plan their lives. And it will take some time to really set in because it is such a big change that really does sort of strike at the heart of everything. Um, so much of what we plan is based on our uh, death. Um, other things that will happen in the next 10 years, uh, this is between 2030 and 2040. Let's just say a second decade. I feel like that's... Okay, uh, yeah, yeah. Second well, decade after the scan. That makes sense. So first decade after the scan is, you know, people are joining these utopias and they're re- realizing some basics about the world. Second decade, um, worlds will start to specialize, I think, more. Uh, so rather than every world being a sort of self-contained society that has a bunch of rules that are sort of based on some human idea of what a perfect world would be, uh, you might start to have worlds that people go to just for a particular activity or purpose. Um, you know, it might be as simple as like, oh, somebody made a world where gravity is really low and it's unpleasant to be there for any any reason other than to like fly around, but lots of people like to go there and fly around, right? Um, and then when you're done flying, you just leave because gra- well, and gravity is low and it's annoying. <laughs> and one of the things that we didn't mention when we were talking about the utopia is that one of the things that would cause them to fail mm-hmm. is that the art of sort of building these worlds, as we've talked about, it's complicated. Uh, yes. And giving the exact instructions and building these things out to work how you want them to work is 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 kind of a big deal. It's not like super easy to do. And there's a lot of learning that has to happen. And so the utopias may fail because they can't really do everything well. And I think the specialization of worlds also comes from the fact that, you know, it's just easier for, you know, a world to specialize in one thing and do that really well. Like, uh, yeah. like this world has the best uh, food and stuff, right? I mean, everyone's going to... Sure, or even more specialized than that. But yeah, I think somebody like a particular might type be of food, like eventually. really good at sculpting mountains or somebody might be really good at, you know... Um, like coming up with, uh, I don't know, realistic uh, snowstorms or I don't know. I mean, I think any kind of thing that you might want to experience, no matter what it is, um, there's all this data in the exec from the scans. Uh, but getting at it is a fairly abstract process and getting the exec to sort of remix it in a way that humans would like is a, is very technical and does take a lot of practice and interest so as people you know people would get obsessed with various things and they'd get good at making them and then they would be the ones who made the most popular worlds uh to fulfill those particular needs now we're still talking about pretty early on so i think the specialization is still at the level of like the things we're talking about um somebody's good at x and so their world gets a little more popular or you know uh well it's uh, not just people i it's not about one. like people being good at things, right? It's about the, sure it could be a, like a system or the world collecting uh, talent uh, mm-hmm. and effort. That's like you know because again, it's hard to also copy things between worlds, right? We've established, so I think it's you know it's right. it's specialization of the world, not the people. Although I think that to some extent those go hand in hand, right? So, but we're thinking of each world as having an admin, and at least at first, I think these would be relatively small group projects. But yeah, as the worlds themselves get bigger, you can have the other people in the world help you with the project and 
uh, like the way that a software startup grows into a big company. Some of these, um, you know, some of these startup worlds would grow into big worlds that have lots of people actually working on the sort of programming aspect of them all the time. Um, but they would still probably be led by some administrator who has vision and has some of the most uh, exclusive access. And, uh, you know, and some of them would be led by committees or groups or whatever, obviously, um, that would, that kind of organization would exist as well. Um, but, uh, they would get more, um, more specialized to some degree. Um, some would be better at some things, some would be better for other things. There would be a rise of world hopping in general. So people would, in the first 10 years, they're not shifting around worlds that frequently. They might do it a little bit, but... Um, there might start to be people who every single day they visit multiple worlds, right? Um, they have, right, because you, you have to do that because like one world has the best tennis court and exactly. one world has the best sushi. And, you know, if you're starting to to get on with your life and, and have a routine where you participate in different leisure activities or whatever it is, you're going to have to, since, since it's hard to put all of them in one utopian world, uh, you're going to inevitably end up like, spending your day going from world to world for depending on the task or thing you want to do for fun. Right. Exactly. Depending on what it is that you want and where it is available. So yeah, I mean, different kinds of food specialization, different kinds of landscape specialization, different kinds of activity specialization and, uh, and different social groups, um, would be all the kinds of things you'd be hopping among. Um, and at this point also in this second decade, we want to talk about, you know, the, very beginnings of the development of infrastructure worlds, right? So we had a whole episode about this. We don't need to go into every... Well, we are going to come back to this, I think, a little bit later uh, yeah, to, yeah. today even. But yeah. Uh, but yeah, this would, you know, that kind of goes, flows out of the specialization, right? I mean, an infrastructure world is just a world that's very specialized to some useful purpose. It's so. just, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So um, this is like the very beginning of that. So we're seeing specialization and the beginning of infrastructure specialization. We can get into more of that later. Do uh, do we want to jump into the next decade? Yeah, by the, the by the third decade is when we start seeing these really big city worlds. In a way, this is kind of it's kind of cyclical, right? Because you start with people trying to build the utopias, failing and things splintering into specialized worlds, and then eventually you see them consolidating back together. And so, in the third decade, mm-hmm. people start they kind of have the tools and the know-how to to kind of do a better job of what they wanted to do in the first decade, which is build an all-encompassing utopia world. Maybe they're not, they've sort of given up on the idea that it could be utopian in any sense, but they just start right, building right. big big cities, essentially, right? Um, that just, you know, consolidate a lot of people and things into one place. Um, yeah, well, and- I see this as being sort of a, a reaction to or a, the specialization, which is that at first you're trying to make these utopias and they're based on concepts and they's, mostly they fail. The ones that don't fail sort of become some of these specialized early worlds because, you know, this utopia is really good at X, sort of the way that uh, Amish make cabinets or something, right? Um, but um, after the specialization has happened for 10 years, then people start to realize, well, if what I'm doing mostly is world hopping, then what I want is like a residential world that is the place that I call home. But I actually don't spend all my time there. It's more like a comfortable place that I return to frequently. And that might be the beginning of these big city worlds because you make some place that's like what its specialization is, is it's a really like nice place to live, you know? Um, 
And then as more and more people choose that world, then the network effects get greater and it becomes not just a nice place to live, but a popular place to live. And it's not ideologically driven the way the utopias were because it's just trying to attract people to live there, knowing that those people will leave and go and do other things as part of their daily routine. Um, but the network effects are strong. And as people get better and better at sharing information with each other, they will start to build more and more things right into the world that you might have previously had to travel for, for convenience sake. And, um, you know, it gets more and more like a sort of the way I'm imagining these worlds is sort of like um, in science fiction, uh, you know, they have sort of city planets. Sometimes there's a famous one in Star Wars, but there's other ones, you know, where like a whole planet will be just like covered in, you know, Manhattan style skyline. And I don't know, I'm imagining that they have a density. that's sort of like that. I mean, they might look however, of course, they can look however we want them to. But I'm imagining that they, you know, we end up with these large multi-million person um uh, constructions that have a lot that they have enough attractions that you might be willing to spend, you know, years there without ever hopping to another world, even though they're kind of coming out of, um, a, a desire to have like more of a home base that has people in it rather than, you know, uh, being a specialized world for fun. Yeah. And these early city worlds actually kick off a multi-decade trend. Yeah. This takes a uh, while that, to grow. Yeah. Th that we've discussed uh, that c carries on for, you know, the next several decades and probably on even through the beginning of our story of, of just increasing world consolidation, which is just an inevitable result of the network effects of, you know, eventually, uh, you know, once people have the know-how and the technical skill to start, you know, building these big, useful worlds where everything is under one roof, um, that happens more and more. And, um, you know, I think that that's just going to be kind of inevitable, but it will it will be a long process um, for Correct. that to, like, fully happen. Yeah, I mean, I think if you analogize this to like the way the internet works, you know, the first two decades, like the 80s and 90s or something, or the 70s and 80s, I guess, uh, on the internet, were like, you know, email gets invented, HTML gets invented, these basic infrastructures get invented, but not a lot's happening. And then, you know, once you get to the uh, 2000s, then you have things like Facebook that, you know, start to collect these massive network effects and seem to just be sort of immortal now, you know, like there'll probably be a f something called Facebook 50 years from now. I don't know how related it'll be to the website that was online in 2004, but it, you know what I mean? It's like they become, uh, hard to get well, away It's hard from. to unseat, you mm -hmm. know, because mm -hmm. again, the network effects make it, you know, it's hard to That's leave the them because yeah. yeah, you can't, you know, you, a lot of people have to defect all at once in order right. to 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 leave them, right? If you just defect on your own, then you're losing too much value. Exactly. Uh, so that's so that I dynamic mean, that's, just on in hyperdrive for about you know three four decades basically, and then the only other thing we sort of have in here to talk about with regard to like big landmark events like that is way down in one two three four five. Seven in the seventh decade, so way down in 2080. Really just before our story starts. Right before our story starts, we just have a note here that by then there is a generation that has grown up of native megacity residents. So by that time, it's been 30 years since the first megacities were um, created, and 
or became megacities. They probably were created earlier than that. And, uh, but they got big enough to be megacities. And, uh, at that time, like there have been kids now who have been born in a megacity, raised in a megacity, basically spent their whole life considering a megacity home. I mean, they might've been hopping around to other worlds because that's part of life, but they have been like living there. And that is a cultural thing. Like the way that you feel like you're a New Yorker, if you're from New York or something like that, you would feel like you're from, you know, the megacity. And so that's, I think, an important sort of cultural milestone that's going to have happened relatively recently before our story starts. Yeah, where that's like a major identity that certain people have uh, that yeah. wouldn't have been super relevant in the early days of the constellation. And we're probably in the early days in our people in our would, would identify to some degree a lot with whatever happened pre-scan, right? I mean, you'd still yeah, think sure. of yourself as... Just the you same, know, just the same way we do now. Like your yeah. ethnicity, your nationality, your sexuality, your you know social circle. These are the kinds of things that would make up your identity, and that stuff would all erode over time, while never going completely away. But I think the this new identity of like which mega city did you grow up in, which mega city did your family live in, uh, would would be grafted on top of that. And that actually transitions, since we're talking about a generation of people being born mm-hmm. uh, in these megacities, into our next two categories, which yeah. are birth and generations. And so, yeah, it's just for birth, yeah. yeah, this is a good chance to really explain how, exactly how our birth system works. We've kind of explained it, but uh, we've gotten a little more detailed in how figuring it out. Um, so, you can have children in the constellation, and you can... You can skin that process however you want. So, I mean, it defaults to the way it works on Earth where, you know, you have a pregnancy that lasts nine months and then, a, a, a you know, a birthing process just like we think of today. But uh, under the hood, it's just kind of mixing, you know, two people's genetic files and producing a kid. And there's no reason that it actually has to take nine months. So... Uh, right, or have any physical aspect like you could or just... have any like exactly like you could just say to the exec uh, I want to have a child with someone and like that child just like you know suddenly appears right um, and in fact we're saying that the first time you want to have a child it is virtually you probably check with the other person first right uh, yeah I'm sure they'd have to give I'm just permission. thinking the exec should like have a do you want to have a child with this person why slash n sort of well you know and that that bit about like the parents contract or whatever is something we haven't totally figured out yeah. and i i don't want to get bogged down today no, so no, let's no. kind of just like come back later. to that it just occurred to me right now it's gonna have yeah. to be some negotiation you know and can you have three parent <laughs> children and so on but let's right. come back right. uh but the point is like once you decide to have a child if you know to ask for it from the exec you can basically make that happen almost instantaneously but because we're positing our our sort of unknown simulators don't want runaway population growth uh they've prevented people from having as many children as they want to have and instead of putting a strict limit that just says oh you three kids is the max that's it Mm -hmm. what they've done is they've just you know, added in, in exponentially increasing waiting period. Mm-hmm. Um, and we actually sort of like calculated out even what that would be, just figuring that it basically it multiplies the amount of time by four, uh, you know, for every child. So 
I think we said if the first child, I guess I said instantaneously a second ago, but actually what we have in our notes here is it's a day. So it takes a day to have your first kid. Mm -hmm. Again, that's only if you ask it to do that, right? I mean, the thing is that... You have to figure this out. But basically the the minimum amount, if you say, I want to have a kid and I want it to be generated as quickly as possible, will take 24 hours. The first time. It'll take 24 hours. That's right. Yeah. So then we multiply that by four each time, right? So the second child is four days. Third child is 16 days. Fourth child is 64 days. And if and you so know how exponential growth works, this gets big fast uh, to the point that, you know, by the time you're at the fifth child, it's now taking a year, right? It's now taking longer than the nine-month wait that we are accustomed to. Right. And then that and, gets much faster quite quickly. <laughs> yeah. Three years, 11 years, 44 years. I mean, these are approximate numbers. But basically, it would be impossible for anyone at this point in the constellation when we're starting our story 75 years in after the scan to have more than eight children. That would be the max. If you were dedicated to having children... That would be the max you could accomplish because the ninth children, but at that point, the wait is 176 years. Right. Like so you're longer the, than our entire history. Beyond the story at that point. Right. So that gives us some limits, which I think is good. So in that, you know, in that first 10 decade, uh, first 10 year decade, the, just the fact that birth is allowed will be discovered because at first, right, it's by default off. You have to turn birth on. In yes, that that's next the other decade, thing some people would start to realize that the birth curve existed because they'd be trying to have kids and they'd have to wait increasing amounts of time. And they might not realize until that fifth child, because if they don't specify that they want it faster and they just are having kids the traditional nine-month way, they're going to end up waiting longer than they have to. For the so first they won't four, know. yeah. So they won't know that the curve exists until they start hitting the point in the curve where it's longer than nine months. Exactly. Uh, but other people might be like, as soon as they realize that it's a simulation, they might think, well, well, maybe we can have faster kids and they might try to do that. So some people might discover it in that next decade, but I think it won't be common knowledge, honestly, until the third decade after scan. So somewhere between 2040 and 2050, it's widely disseminated that there is a birth curve and that if you want kids, this is how you are limited. Um, and I think most people would find this to be a fairly reasonable limit because it does allow you to have kids much more easily than nature. Um, and, you know, having more than eight kids as a human person is fairly challenging. <laughs> I mean, it is doable, of course. Uh, uh, you know, in my family, uh, two generations ago, there was a 13-person generation. Um, so it is definitely possible. But... Uh, but that's a lot of kids, you know, most people have on average two or three kids, right? So, um, yeah, it depends what your priorities are. I mean, you could imagine some people would really make this a priority. Oh yeah. Uh, especially super religious people who are in like sort of small utopian worlds and can't easily attract others to them. Well, and the funny image to me is this yeah. naturalist, like sort of Amish world, yeah. right? where they're both uh, committed to naturalist rules and also committed to having children, say. Mm -hmm. And so then you have these women uh, a few decades in, or not even a few decades in, like relatively early on yeah, that are you know, pregnant years, for 11-year yeah. terms. Right. <laughs> and they'd, you imagine they'd be pretty annoyed by that. Uh, and, you know, there'd be some pressure to be like, okay, let's let's deviate from the natural, like, like, do I really have to have this, like, bloated, you know, stomach and feel, like, awkward for well, 11 you years you don't have to be bloated for 11 years it's you just do if you're 11... in a naturalist world if that's if that's the uh <laughs> ideology you're committed to that's I what i'm see, saying i see but you could you could just not get 
pregnant. You could just tell the exec to just like, yeah, like cook this thing for 11 years and and give me a progress report now and then, right? Yeah, if if that's what a reasonable person would do. I just think it's funny. Oh, hang on, because does it, you have to start it and then wait 11 years or do you just have to wait 11 years and then you can do it in a day? Do you know what I mean? Can you not be pregnant for those 11 years and then be like, I want to have a baby today? Oh, I was imagining the first thing. Right. I guess I was imagining the second. So we should think about that. I don't think that I can understand that you might have the rules set up such that the women are have no birth control and they have no, you know, so they just naturally get pregnant because they're in marriages and, you know, they have cultures of having sex with each other during that time. And then, you know, the pregnancy just has to wait. But I could also imagine it working like you can't start a pregnancy until the waiting period is over. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, I think, uh, that, either of you those know, makes it, sense to me. E- either know. way, I, I guess like yeah. the sort of image I have in my head does not make, doesn't work in the second one. So, right. uh, but, but yeah, I mean, I think either way, um, you know, well, that's how that plays out. Yeah. And, uh, and so, the, you know, then I think we can move on to the next thing, yeah. right. Which is, uh, which is the generations. Um, so we're, we're giving these numbers where gen, gen zero is the people that, were born before the scan. They're the people who got scanned. Yes. Just to put it simply, they are the people who got scanned. So all the people who got scanned are Gen Zero, and then anybody who was born inside the simulation, even if they have the same parents as someone who was scanned, right? Like if your older brother was scanned, but you were born inside the simulation, then you are Gen 1, and your brother is Gen Zero. That's right. And since, you know, the first child can take as short as 24 hours to to create, uh, already by the second decade, we've got the first, you know, a young adults coming of age, you know, whether you call that 18 or whatever, uh, of, of generation one, right? right? The first uh, generation of people are that were truly native to the constellation. Right. So if you imagine it's 18 or whatever, then it's like 2038 will be the year that the first generation reaches 18. And, you know, we're imagining that this initial child rearing process, um, and I guess this is relevant to the first and the second decade, uh, doesn't really have a lot of common knowledge to draw upon, right? Like how do you raise a child in this weird constellation environment? It would have some things in common with now. Uh, right. Well, the biggest thing it would have in common with now is that a lot of the advice would be useless because it would be based on the way the world used to be. (laughs) Well, sure. I mean, you could be, yeah, (laughs) skeptical of of existing advice is maybe not always and i think like a lot of you know just like a lot of things that a parent would try to teach their kid not you know with fully good meaning and everything um would just not be that helpful right but you also have the special problems of the constellation like your child has godlike powers potentially depending on how you set things up right um as do you and so you know that's problematic (laughs) Right, and but we did say that the children are born uh, automatically enrolled in the contract of of the world that they're born into. Correct. So, but I think because this is sort of most well, it's it's the first go at this that parents are having. They're not necessarily going to be super up to date on how to how to use that to their advantage. Well, right? they probably so they may... won't even know it's true, right? The first generation of parents will just have kids wherever they are, and those kids will get enrolled into that contract uh, by default, and they won't really realize what the co- consequences of that are until the first kid like 
you know, reaches speaking age and then disappears or something. Right, because most contracts, I think we've said, most standard contracts are going to allow you to freely eject, right? Because right. people don't want to get trapped in places they go into. So then pretty I think quickly, that's the default. parents would start um, sharing the information that what you want to do is lock down your home world before you have the kid, right? Like we talked about. So um, within, I think, the second or no, probably within the... Yeah, I think somewhere within the second decade, people would start to realize that because in the first decade, a bunch of kids would have gone missing and other problems would have happened. Um, so that would start to go around and maybe it would take a while to disseminate. But over the next decade or so, people would realize that if you are going to have kids, you have to take precautions um, so that their godlike powers don't uh, come into full use too early. And moving into the third decade, you can imagine these uh, now slightly older uh, Generation One, uh, th- th- this cohort mm-hmm. is going to start founding their own their own worlds, right? Doing right. things their own way, sort of established, like you know, starting to break away from in very intentional ways from from Generation Zero. Yeah, um, and so you'd have sort of you know worlds that specialized in the interest of 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 the interests of generation 1. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And this is like um they're simulation natives. So they're going to be thinking about things always first from the point of view of like the world is mutable and can be uh changed to anything that me and the people I want to hang out with will agree upon, which is something that is probably not that easy for that first generation to fully get their heads around. Um uh, the other thing that would probably happen is, you know, there would be a set of standard child rearing practices adopted at this point. So by, you know, by three decades after the scan, we're thinking that, you know, people basically do know that you can't just birth your kid into a an uncontrolled world. And not just that, but you, you know, there are certain things you got to teach them because they are going to go out into the world at some point and they're going to have all this power and, uh, there's various ways you can get in trouble and you know it's going to be you're not going to teach them not to touch a hot stove the way you would a kid in our world but you're going to teach them not to sign sketchy contracts and other kinds of things that um that make sense for for this world right and that leads into what's also happening at this time which is that the generation the second generation gen 2 is now being born Mm -hmm. uh and then over the next decade uh coming of aged and uh we're imagining that now uh, or decade four, rather. Decade, decade four, but Gen yeah. Gen two, yeah. Mm-hmm. So we're imagining that this this second generation inside the constellation, because the the child rearing practice, in part because the child rearing practices were uh, a bit better implemented, and right. in part also because of just the natural cyclical nature of these things, that if if sort of the first generation was maybe a little more rebellious and stuff, the second generation is much more managed and also literally maybe has less freedom too to the extent that they might have been locked down for longer uh by their parents um right because they might be trapped in a world that has you know that they can't eject from and that has lower permissions for them yeah so i think you know i mean this is obviously like intentionally vague for us at this point and something we'll we'll explore further as we get on in the writing process but i'm i'm imagining that yeah the first generation is sort of traditionally rebellious and very different from their parents and has like sometimes like a rocky relationship with gen zero and that you know gen two is more like you know uh 
much more under the thumb of Gen One. <laughs> much more under the thumb of of yeah. And even exactly. though they will come of age before our story starts, I don't think they become the same kind of cultural phenomenon that Gen One is because. Um, they don't have as much of a difference between Gen 1 in terms of their facility with the technology. Um, and they are more controlled um, due to Gen 1 knowing a bit more about how the tech works. Well, and actually, the fact that you bring that up is interesting because they're not just going to be children of Gen 1 people. They would also, also be... be- Yes, Gen Zero. Children of Gen Zero, since people aren't really dying or right. aging out of uh, child rearing age. But Gen so. Zero with more information, so they'll still be similar, more parenting like a Gen One person than like a than like they did when they parented their first kid. If they're you know if they're the same parent, um, I think. I mean, you know, obviously there'll be variation. There will certainly be some Gen Two and Gen Three and even Gen Four kids who are raised by very traditionalist Gen Zero parents, because of course. Why wouldn't there be? Um, they wouldn't be the majority, but they would definitely exist. Um, so that's something we can play with. There can be people who were raised that way at any time, really, um, uh, that we're focusing on in our story. So, I mean, at this point, we've covered some of the really, really fundamental stuff, birth, death, generations, landmark events. Let's see if let's see if we can pick up the pace here, maybe, and yeah. just uh, do you want to just alternate doing these uh, boxes in sure. our spreadsheet we'll here, boxes. and yeah. and try to try let's just like blast through this, jump the rest through of some this. categories. So category one, you start, John. It's infrastructure. Okay, so under infrastructure, in the first decade, um, you know there isn't really infrastructure. I mean, this is the decade that we talked about earlier, where people are founding their mini utopias that are often failing, and people don't really know how to. Uh, handle the exec and do very involved things. Um, so you might have sort of primordial attempts at infrastructure, you know, the beginnings of what might be, you know, a messaging planet to handle sort of uh, messages for people, things that people might think are useful. Are There's attempts to build them, but their infrastructure is not very relevant in the first decade. Right. And in the second decade, um, as the specialization is happening, some of these primordial uh, worlds are going to start to be um, the first recognizable versions of what we would consider the infrastructure world. So that's commerce, communication, like you were just talking about, library, like a Wikipedia world or an almanac world, um, uh, you know, simple marketplaces. Um, these would be the the earliest implementations of this stuff that start to attract some users and start to sort of show the value of having um, infrastructure worlds. And then one of the popular market worlds is going to be the one that ultimately becomes money world. Like we talked about, it will, uh, in order to facilitate its marketing, it will have some kind of internal uh, money system that it uses there that it, it figures out a way to sort of um, uh, open up that, that money system to everybody so that this world can be the world where your money sits. And we're going to focus in on this money world for a second because it is one of the most important infrastructure worlds. Uh, so in the third decade is when that money world really starts to develop out of its origins as just a marketplace world where people are bartering. Right. Uh, and, that, and the money system develops out of a credit system that is created out of necessity in that market world. But that credit system slowly becomes a standard that more and more people use. Um, mm-hmm. And then this is not money world related, but we also talked about how this is 
you know, it has to do with the maturing of the economy in general. Right. Um, you would start to have certification worlds. You can think of these as schools if you want to, but because there'd start to be more of a mature job market, you'd also start to have a need right. for ways to, you know, certify that, say, someone is good at a particular craft, right? At, at building certain kinds of worlds or something. Right. So this could be um, schools, and it could also be something like um, reputation right? Uh, some kind yes. of reputation management, like a Yelp or something like that. Absolutely. So uh, if somebody ripped you off or if somebody, you know, told you something was one thing and it was something else, you could leave a negative review or something like that. And yeah, so these things would be happening in that uh, third uh, one. And then in the fourth decade after the scan, um, Money World reaches full adoption. And we were thinking that the way this happens, I think we mentioned this in the previous podcast, but we were thinking this happens by... Um, some kind of relinquishment of deletion rights on the part of the people who created Money World. So let's say for a minute it's just got a single creator. There's a sort of Bill Gates of Money World or a Craig, like Craigslist Craig, uh, of Money World, and and he like um, publicly uh, renounces um, the idea that he would ever delete the world, and maybe he even like makes a show of sort of you know making it impossible to delete the world. Uh, by deleting the key that would do it. And that, that stunt helps them to go from, you know, slowly becoming a de facto standard to getting full adoption and basically being the money world that people uh, trust. And that might happen, by the way, because some other competing money world um, might get deleted, right? Like there might be some situation where uh, something is a scam and that, you know, so maybe this is like in in, in response to that. Uh, I don't know, but anyhow, uh, in this fourth decade, that's the decade that Money World really stops being like a market that also has a currency and starts being just like straight up a world that provides money as infrastructure, and that's sort of its service that it provides the world. Um, because and that's possible because of the stunt that they pull that that gives people trust that the, that it will continue. And that means there's a pretty mature monetary system exactly. 35 years later when our story starts. Exactly. Yeah. So, right. So by the time this happens, it's been four decades where the world has like not had a monetary system the way it did in the old days. Um, and then after that, it has something, it has rebuilt that to some extent and things that count as work in the sense that they need to be done, but people don't want to do them. Um, can be motivated with money um, in the tradition. So, so next up, we've got religion. Yeah, and um, those religions uh, are they're going to be founded in that first decade. I mean, most you know, of them. Yeah. They probably overlapped a fair amount with those little mini utopia attempts, right? Exactly. A lot of them probably have of the flavor of one of these religions. Mm -hmm. um, and again, they're an immediate attempt to answer the question of everything has changed. What does meaning? Uh, what, what, what it, where does meaning come from now in this new constellation environment? And so defaultism, these are all things we talked about in our religion episode, so I won't go into them, but defaultism gets founded here. Mm -hmm. uh, naturalism gets founded. Mm -hmm. um, various uh, pre-scan religions that we know of today uh, start their version uh, inside the constellation or they start like, like have like a continuation. Worlds, right? Yeah. Yeah. They, you know, they, they, they figure out how they're going to adapt to the new environment. Mm-hmm. 
Um, this is when uh, Lester, which is the name we're giving to sort of one of our prophets. Uh, Messiah prophet type figures, yeah. uh, supposedly existed. Um, we're not actually going to confirm whether he did exist or not, but supposedly it would have been in this first decade that Lester recorded his famous dialogues with the exec, uh, wrote them down or transcribed them for people, and uh, then vanished, and no one knows where he is today. Correct. Yeah, and all that would probably take place in the first 10 years. I think um, some of these would literally just start as... um, you, you know, cult-like utopias and then would grow into religious worlds. And some of them would, um, uh, happen other ways. Um, but, uh, then, you know, about 10 years later in the second decade, that's when the religion of Lesterism actually starts. So, you know, supposedly this guy existed at, and he wrote these dialogues and whoever wrote the dialogues, they, they exist. And, uh, somebody finds them and starts to, um, worship them in this time period. Uh, and that's really the only, and the other religions would just continue to grow and, um, change. Right. And then in the decade after that, we have, uh, marked that we want to have a, a schism, a religious schism inside the uh, world of defaultism. Right. Uh, and obviously defaultism we've talked about is people that think you you're not allowed to change the default right because that's the true will of the simulators but of course there's a lot of room for argument there in terms of what does and does not count as a default and imagine one of those arguments turns into a full-scale schism and people in the defaultist camp uh, split up right uh specifically over potentially uh the having of children right because the default is no children uh, potentially. Yeah. I don't think we've, um, uh, we've decided that for that, sure, that's but that's, one, that, one that could that be one argument. Potentially could really split people and they could say, how could this be, you know, how could this be what the God wants? Basically, I, we don't believe it, but I like the idea that eventually there's a sort of orthodox and liberal or reform or whatever you want to call it, uh, uh, sort of sides of the defaultist movement where some people are really defaultist. They don't change any defaults and... You yeah, know, they're still living like hermits on the savanna. They basically live alone, right, on the savanna. Um, you know, maybe they visit other worlds in small ways or something. Um, but then there are others who are like, you know, they they leave most of the defaults on. <laughs> and, you know, and that's, that's considered a kind of defaultism too. And they're a little bit more... Um, loose in how they pick them. So I, I think that's fun to, to think about. But we can move on from religion... Uh, on we talked about politics, and you know, obviously, right away in the first decade, in-world governance is going to emerge. So that you know, um, that's going to happen right away. It's going to be based on what people had before in you know, the real world, and then it will just evolve sort of slowly over several decades out of that. But at first, there's essentially no way to do any kind of multi-world governance because communication is impossible and transportation is such that you can't transport you know weapons or anything like that um so it's just not really possible to do any kind of a multi-world governance at first but there would be the desire so let's talk about that yeah and again we didn't flesh out uh politics that much but we we do know that well, over the uh, next few decades i think honestly john we just decided it's like all in world right i mean yeah exactly and and we did decide that eventually uh you know 
several decades later, um, around 2060 to 2070, um, we wanted, to, and because this is well also into the world consolidation trend, where right. these like big city worlds are forming, right? And we imagine, you know, two of them that are, you know, end up in a competition. Now, again, there's not a lot of scarcity in the constellation, um, but one scarcity is, you know, user base, right? Right. And, and so, network effects are powerful, so that is that that is relevant to a large city world. Yeah, so just like you might imagine, um, you know, a war between two, say, operating systems today, um, mm-hmm. except it takes, you or know, social networks is, or something. Yeah. This is like literally like people are living inside these uh, social networks, if you want to call them that. Mm-hmm. Uh, it takes on, I think, like a, a higher stakes feeling, mm-hmm. right? But two city worlds are, are locked in a fight for, for users. Um, and we would have definitely like liked the idea of that, of that happening around uh, 2060, 2070. Right. And then in the next decade, the seventh decade, uh, that battle that they're in uh, sort of switches or evolves um, where it's less about um, finding users that like, you know, log in frequently uh, or live there and more about um, kind of being a battle over affiliate worlds. Right. So that's a concept we should explain. I don't think we've talked about that, but we had this idea that like Maybe a way, if you wanted to start an empire in this world, maybe a way that you would try to do that if you were, let's say, a large uh, mega city with a lot of, you know, uh, value that you could exploit in terms of a large network of people is that you could come up with some kind of uh, reciprocal um, user contract deal that extends not just like to entire worlds, basically, where, you know, um, you might sign somebody up uh, who's created a great world for uh, skydiving and be like, I want anybody who is a resident of my world to be able to like go into a uh, preferred tube and get into this world really fast with no review and just get, you know, rubber stamped and put right in with all the best, uh, you know, uh, permissions and in exchange we will kind of give the same uh, preferential treatment to your users when they go to our world or something like that. And uh, by doing that, they could create like a network of affiliated worlds. And this would lead to even more consolidation because it would take away some of the um, disadvantages of being in one of these worlds if you have all of these uh, affiliated places that you can easily get to, um, you know, to provide more uh, uh, variety. But then eventually we're imagining that's a, a pretty tenuous arrangement uh, in the constellation and that for a variety of reasons that sure. sort of like loosely built empire eventually falls apart. Um, and we also imagine that the war kind of ends too. And, and one of the ways that also might happen is that if management of one of the world's changes and the new management just doesn't really care <laughs> about this war, which doesn't, right. you know. Right, it's the not war is clear not existential. The, I think that's important yeah. to say, right? Like they cannot kill the other city so if 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 city number two decides we're never going to win this war for users against city number one let's just accept that we're going to be number two forever or maybe even number three and just stop fighting um there would be no further negative consequence right i mean and this is why empire is so hard to create here because you can't go in and kill everybody when they decide they don't want to be part of your empire anymore Right. So yeah, coercion is not a it. It you've got I guess versions of coercion, but it just ultimately there's no real threat of violence. Uh, that's that unless you really trick people like into that. like a right. weird contract, you know, which at this point should be rare. 
Right. And even if you could do that, the, uh, the manpower necess- necessary to do that to enough people to affect an empire is just so great. So I think what happens is for about 10 years, there is this empire. And then by the, by the eighth decade, it's, um, it's fallen apart. Uh, and then, oh, sorry. The, the very last uh, square we have for this is like right around the time of our story starting, this empire, this whole war is over. But maybe there's some remainder of an old rivalry, or maybe there's some like you know the two identity groups, the city one and city two identity groups, maybe have some dislike for each other that still lingers, or distrust for each other that still lingers. That could be you know we we, we put that in mostly because I think we could play with that in one of our you know, in our story and have, yeah, totally. I think that'll work. One of the characters like wary of the main character for that reason or something like that. All right. So, uh, shall we move on? Yeah. Next up we've got recreation and, um, obviously people are going to be looking for recreation almost immediately. So in the first decade, sure. Uh, people are going to be building things that are like games, things that are like theme parks, but they're going to be on a smaller scale and they're going to be mostly inspired by, you know, sort of pre-scan tropes, right? There, right. you know, if you build a theme park, your main reference point is existing pre-existing theme parks like Disneyland. So, you know, they're right. We, Maybe the, the creativity doesn't here, have tracks or something, but it's not going to be like a fundamentally different experience. Yeah, it's going to be pretty derivative of previous types of recreation. Right, and that goes on for ten years, and then people are going to realize like we want to do things that have been imagined but not really built in the old world right so that's when you get like sort of west world level fantasy fulfillment worlds you have you know sex ais and uh flying and horseback riding and uh uh you know uh going into submarine to the bottom of the ocean and things like that like things that are fun that would be hard in the old worlds but are easy relatively easy to build here um and that allow you to experience danger or thrills that would be, you know, hard to come by um, in the normal world. Yeah. And, and we don't have a lot else in this column. So all I would say is that, you know, it follows the same world consolidation trend. So you imagine you and, and also same trend in like terms of people getting better at mastering the exec and specializing and uh, learning more about how to do things. So essentially the technology of the uh, entertainment and recreation is just going to increase uh, and it's going to become more consolidated. But that's, we don't really have any other major landmarks. Yeah, um, right. Like basically just once you get to that fantasy fulfillment level, it just gets more and more like advanced, but it doesn't really, that's sort of what recreation is. And also, I mean, recreation and work just as like, and even science, which we're going to talk about later, just as like general concepts honestly like really blur after 20 30 years in the simulation right because what you're doing for work and what you're doing for recreation and like you know okay you can be earning money but since money doesn't determine whether or not you eat it doesn't determine whether or not you have a place to live it's just a status game um it's different these things just all kind of become one thing it's like sort of like just life at a certain point so oh yeah and it and it also overlaps a lot with our next category, yeah. right? Which is art movements. I mean, art often sort of relates closely to recreation. I think the reason we have this as a separate category 
is just because it's so critical to our story and our main character. Right. And we talked about this quite a lot episode, uh, last episode. Mm-hmm. Um, so we'll try to get through this quickly. But the first uh, decade, there's going to be obscure art experiments. I mean, artists are going to make art. You sure. Know? Even, even when things change and they get scanned into a computer, they're well, still like, going to do that. That's the first thing I'm going to do when I get scanned into a computer is like, yeah. make some weird art. But I doubt anyone will see it because, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that's the thing is like, you know, these none of these art experiments reach critical mass and there's no like established genre formats. Um, so it doesn't, you know, it's just on that individual scale. Yeah. So it's like Nickelodeon times or whatever. It's like, you know, people are experimenting with the fact that you can, you're in this world, you have all this power, you can make art in the next decade. Um, I think you would see the first sort of landmark art world. Um, and we talked before in last episode about what that means. So I won't get into it, but this would be a shorter, shorter, smaller form of the art world. It would probably be referential to the history of art pre-scan. Uh, it would also probably be personal to the creator. So, you know, maybe uh, I'm somebody who loves uh, the paintings of Vincent van Gogh. And uh, maybe I want to, you know, express my anxiety over the transition uh, by creating a world where everything looks like it has been painted by Van Gogh, but you can, you know, walk through the park and experience it and see a starry night, you know, when the sun sets and then it's over. I don't know. Something simple like that feels like the kind of first thing that would really break through. And like a lot of people would go visit this world and, um, experience not just the fact that someone had made art in the constellation, which would be happening right from the beginning, but experience this idea of like a world as art, like as the unit of art. Um, yeah, and then I think in the third decade, we start to have a reaction against uh, referencing things from before the transition or before the scan. Yep. Uh, and because this is also concurrent to when uh, Generation 1, the, the native people to the simulation, are sort of really coming into their own and founding cities and yep. stuff. So you imagine that the kind of art that they're going to be interested in uh, maybe doesn't reference Van Gogh because like, what is, what is Van? And, and it might go deeper than Van Gogh, just in kinds of the kinds of stories that you would tell, right. You know, like, you know, what is a, what does a bank heist mean to someone who is born in the simulation? I mean, that's like a fun uh, story for, for us today. And it would be a fun story maybe for people that, uh, you know, were in gen zero, but by the time you get to generation one, you right. might just feel like, you know, I want to deal with new things. I want to deal with stuff that's of the constellation and not from a time before it and referencing that. Right, right. And we're imagining that that continues on in the next decade as well. So the third generation or the fourth, I'm sorry, not the third decade. The, oh, yeah. Uh, I guess I blurred together those uh, these last two. The, uh, yeah. I, I, well, yeah, we're just thinking that for about 20 years, this continues. And at first it's like they're literally... It's more like we don't want to reference Van Gogh. We don't want to reference Tarantino, whatever. And then in the second decade, it's more like the second thing you were saying. We're like, we don't want to reference bank robberies. We don't want to reference uh, traditional family structures. We don't want to reference, you know, pre-transition things at all that that don't that aren't the relatable things for Gen 1 uh, and for Gen 0 people who've been living now for a long time. And then uh, the next one, I guess I'll do the next one since you sort of did those two, is um, like from 2060 to 2070, um, there's another backlash on that, right? Which is that there's kind of a new generation of traditionalists where um, this rejection of all things pre-transition starts to be seen as a rejection of humanity or something like that. 
and people say, well, you know, and they they reach like the sort of surrealism phase of this, and they start to think, why shouldn't we be able to freely mix both abstract ideas and concrete things, both the old and the new? So why shouldn't we be able to have a Van Gogh style if we want one, but also have spaceships and uh, aliens with uh, stalks for eyes and, um, you know, whatever else seems relevant to people at, at that moment. Uh, uh, so yeah, that's like kind the, of the equivalent of surrealism, I guess, uh, going th- ripping through ripping through the art world, and then you can go into the next one. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think in, then in the next decade, um, things are just going to start to fracture, right, into right. these micro-genres, because, again, it's sort of a mature art scene at that point. Um, you know, and I'm not gonna, we're not going to go into what all those genres are. We talked about a lot of stuff last episode that could could be a genre but um you know one example would be that sort of that i think is relevant to our timeline actually is the high commitment genre that we talked about last episode which is starting to build art worlds where the purpose is to stay in them a very long time that's part of the Uh, maybe a year maybe two years who knows maybe even longer right right um and so that uh, would be one of many micro trends. You also might have trends towards super short worlds or super minimalist worlds, et cetera, et cetera. Right, right. So yeah, you can listen to the uh, episode about worlds if you want to get all of those details, but that's right. And I think in the next decade, so this is the decade right before the story starts, uh, the eighth decade since the scan, um, some, like the, the that high commitment genre, some people would be coming out of that uh, of a high commitment world, you know, uh, after right because it takes so long to been experience in one for some time, yeah, and they would have missed some of like the goings on in the r- larger constellation and uh, sort of like you know getting out of jail is like now or something like that, and or a coma, and they would. Uh, we, we were thinking like one specific thing that might have happened is like some makers of certain high commitment worlds might have actually already denounced their world, <laughs> like you know, uh, or renounced it, maybe is the right word. Like they have already sort of told people, oh, you shouldn't go in there. You know, (laughs) that was, I was just joking or like, it's not worth the time or something. Um, that could be happening at the same time that like some people are still in those same worlds experiencing them. So there could be a little bit of, uh, sort of tension in the movement toward high commitment worlds itself. Um, as the makers of them maybe have less commitment to them than the users of them. Yeah, and and moving into the next decade, we would imagine that, you know, again, some of the really longer-term experiments, let's say 20 years, right? Right. uh, You're going to... The concept of this world that, you know, we've discussed this one a lot of maybe you, like, live the life of a coal miner or something in real time, you know... Uh, the the brave critics who decided to actually like experience one of these art worlds are you know finally emerging twenty years later right. and give and delivering their reviews and that's one of the things that's happening in the art world right before our story starts which I think is funny and, right so that's the current mood is like the coolest thing for a while has been these really high commitment worlds that like obviously a lot of people don't do them because they're so high commitment but then the first reviews are coming in and that's like sort of the moment we're going to start our story. So I think that's pretty cool. Um, there's just a couple of things in science. So shall I just do them really quickly? I mean, that's barely even a category. Um, yeah, we can just talk through this together cause it's more just like a concept that we sort of figured out. Yeah. So we were just, right. We were just talking in general about like what is going to happen to science in the 
constellation generally, because there are a couple of pretty powerful forces tugging in opposite directions, right? So on the one hand, you have so much control over your physical body um, and the way that you take sensory input that in the first two decades following the scan, as people realize how this is happening, specifically in the second decade for the most part, um, there would be just an explosion of biology and chemistry insights where you know, scientists or scientific teams were able to shrink themselves down to molecular or atomic level or otherwise uh, change their own selves and their instruments in such ways that they can you know, observe things that we can't observe in our world and run experiments that would be very difficult to run in our world. Um, but I think very quickly after those insights are made, right, it, 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 it becomes obvious that further exploration of this type may not be super valuable because <laughs> there's no lives to save by learning this stuff. And there's, you know, there's not much beyond better, uh, recreation basically that well, you can get from it. So why don't you talk about that? Well, I think the other thing too is that, you know, and this is a very important like foundational, like physical rule that we have in the constellation, which uh -huh. is that people cannot hack and alter their own mind file. Correct. Um, there's some major walls around that that the simulators have set up. Presumably that's because they don't want uh, people mucking around with their own intelligence and making themselves super smart and then escaping the simulation or who knows what they're trying to avoid. But Right, uh, right. Our, th that our is, basic assumption is they're trying to avoid any kind of super intelligence. Why exactly they're trying to avoid that, I'm leaving ambiguous, but we're just that's assuming right. that. Yeah. So, so, but you... There is like, you know, obviously like information can get into your mind file, like your sensory information, things you see flow into it. And we also decided that, you know, food and drugs can also flow in, um, right? So you do have some ways to modify your experience, even if you can't actually go in and hack your neurons directly. Correct. And since we have this advanced understanding of chemistry and biology that comes from being able to zoom in on molecules and so on. Uh, we would imagine that there would be very advanced food and drug development, mostly for the sake of recreation in the constellation. And so, you know, we'd probably have the best possible versions that you right. could make of, of drugs that would have, you know, low side effects and high benefits. And of course, they could still be quite addictive, though, is the thing, right? So, oh, yeah, uh, it's a mixed bag here, right? Because, you know, we talked about how, like, maybe everybody is constantly doing caffeine and nicotine, right? Because right. those things do enhance performance, and if they're not going to kill you, uh, I mean, caffeine doesn't really kill you. And but Well, like, the reason yeah. that like many people are addicted to caffeine is because it has basically no, you know, not very bad side effects. Um, and if nicotine were, you know, if you didn't need to smoke it, if it was similar, I think, you know, the same thing would be true of nicotine. So, yeah, I could definitely see those being really... Uh, widely adopted. Um, well, and you wouldn't be able to like overdose on. Um, you wouldn't be able to some, die from overdosing you on something overdose. like heroin, even. So, like right. you know, people would certainly abuse opiates and stuff. Um, and but they would also, you know, they with their advanced chemistry knowledge, who knows, they might be able to find, you know, 
more ideal drugs that leave you more clear-headed and functional but also make you feel good. I mean, whatever the sort of upper limit is on on nature, assuming that you can't change the brain fundamentally, but you can p- drop different chemicals inside of it. Right. And you can do a lot to change your body. So to the extent that anything is stuck in your avatar, uh, you could potentially change that. So you could get maybe get physically addicted to a drug and then alter your avatar to remove the physical addiction potentially um but well your avatar sort of is determined yeah this is you know this is one of those areas that like people experiment with that anyway i don't know if that would work (laughs) yeah yeah and i think this is this is one of the parts of our like core science rules that i think is is still i have the most questions here so i'm sure we'll be coming back to this topic exactly what access you have to your brain i think is still kind of questionable right you definitely can like hack your sensory inputs and we're definitely saying you can't genetically reprogram your brain and like regrow it to be more smart. Like you definitely can't do that. But there's a huge amount of small changes that you might be able to make um, or might not. I don't know. Uh, and so, yeah, I don't know. There's a there's a big gray area that I'm not sure about. There. But we are imagining there'd be like pretty rampant uh, and ju- like abuse of drugs and and uh, enjoyment of of good food using uh, the the best biology and chemistry. Right. But what I don't think with. there'd be is like a really concerted effort to like suss out the physics of the constellation because the physics of the constellation are pretty clearly settings that you can change. So, uh, people, Oh no, I, right. I, I actually disagree with that. No, I, cause I think, I think, uh, the, the, I think there would definitely, I mean, maybe, maybe you're using terms differently than I, I mean, would, I'm not but talking I w- about looking into like what the exec allows or anything like that. I mean, I'd be, I mean, that's what know. I think of as physics in the constellation is right. literally like, that's you know, what takes the place of it. Yeah. I mean, I yeah. think we're thinking about the same thing. Maybe just using, I was using the word physics to mean like literally like, you know, uh, uh forces acting on, you know, uh, right. Yeah. You know, that sort of thing. Like you learn in physics class, like that stuff becomes somewhat irrelevant because it's also mutable so i mean you might want to learn it in order to do certain kinds of design work um but then you know you'd have the it's like when people uh do like um you know animation in 3d uh computer programs right uh you you use earth physics to like simulate a ball bouncing but then if it doesn't bounce the way you want it's often easier to just like make gravity a little less uh powerful to get the bounce you want and it doesn't matter because you're just generating a piece of animated film. Right. So it makes no difference. Um, I think it's kind of like the same thing. It's like, you know, if you're trying to create a world that works a certain way and physics isn't, uh, cooperating with you, you can just change it. <laughs> um, so that makes it less, I think of, a uh, subject of inquiry compared to right. What the real physics of the world are, which is like, what does the exec allow, essentially? What are the limitations of programming in the world? And so that I think people would be aggressively involved in um, at every stage, trying to learn more and more about that. Yeah, and that's but, an interesting topic that we haven't timelined out, so we're going we're gonna to skip that for today. Yeah, but, yeah, we're uh, not going to talk about that right now, but we may want to talk about that at some point. Um, but I don't think there'd be a lot of uh, people looking for new fundamental laws of the universe. They'd be looking for new fundamental laws of the constellation. New well, the universe is gone, right? Like the solar system. Uh, ostensibly, it is outside is the constellation somewhere, but we have no access like, to it. Like yeah. it wasn't scanned, right? I don't think we're thinking uh, like some radius around Earth was scanned. Right. And is in the files. But and any 
you know, old, you know, Mars photography and so on that NASA had would still exist as well, but there's no actual, like, you know, larger universe to gaze at anymore. So it seems somewhat uh, uh, irrelevant at this point, uh, except to people that just like learning for learning's sake. Um, Right. But even those people, I think, would be more focused on learning things about the way the constellation works rather than things about, you know... um, how quarks work or something. You imagine. Like yeah. I think, I think the, the world's smartest minds would be drawn to the more immediately, uh, interesting and, and useful challenge. So, so yeah, let's, run I, I think what we should do is just do make this the last, uh, section. Okay. Um, uh, we, and, and save stuff about our characters for the future. Sure. So, so we're going to go through one last category here. Uh, I guess we're ending on a dark note. Yeah. This, this is a fun one to end on, I think, because I mean, this this category is called atrocities. <laughs> well, yeah, because we just figured, you know, what is again? We're telling a story, and stories are supposed to have bad things to be exciting. Oh so. yeah, well, and this is cultural development, and culture often develops in you know in response to bad things, right? I mean, so let's think about some of the some of the bad stuff that happens. So okay, the, so do you want to go first? Sure. So in the first decade, um, you know, somebody is going to figure out how to be a serial killer. Basically, somebody, some psychopath got scanned and probably several, lots of psychopaths got scanned, but most of them probably don't figure out how to kill people in this world because it ain't that easy, as we've discussed. But somebody is going to figure it out. And there's a big first mover advantage here because once you figure this out, nobody is expecting it. Right. Um, so you can really go around and kill several people before anyone realizes that, th- that this is what you're doing and, and how to avoid you. Uh, so I think somewhere in the first decade, you know, uh, the constellation loses its innocence and the first serial killer goes out and, and does a bunch of murder. That's right. And, uh, sometime in the second decade, um, the stakes increase here, Mm -hmm. uh, and we'll imagine say a bunch of people, you know, trust a, a sketchy admin, um, maybe they, they join someone's world, they get invited in and they, they make the mistake of setting that world to be their new home world right so uh and then the the admin or creator of that world um gets angry for some reason becomes spiteful who knows what the exact story is but uh actually deletes that world and as we've specified if your home world is deleted while you're on it uh there's nowhere to eject you to right um, and so that actually like results in you yourself being deleted. And so this is essentially like a world scale disaster. Uh, this is like where... a world ending. Yeah. It's like, uh, you know, the, the, the fantasy of the earth blowing up, but this really happens to some people or at least the story of it happening starts to, um, circulate. But I like the idea that it really happens. And yeah. And the main lesson and takeaway. Yeah. yeah is that, ahead. you know, you should not, uh, sign this kind of contract where you, you know, set your home world uh, to something that someone else controls. Don't do that. It's dangerous. Right. So then that becomes a norm over the next 10 years. And mostly people uh, adhere to that. But uh, a next atrocity that we thought would happen, which is a little bit more complicated, is a group gets trapped in a world. So basically you have an admin um, who, in this case, uh, maybe, you know, why they do it, I don't know, but for whatever reason, they unexpectedly destroy the only exit. So there used to be some way off of the world. You had to get to a portal or something like that. They destroy the portal. Um, and 
if they do that and refuse to ever recreate it, then everybody who was on that world at that time remains there still to this day. So they didn't die, but uh, it turns out that you can get, you know, stuck into any particular place. Uh, so that's another lesson that you should be wary of limited eject contracts and really make sure that you trust the world creator if you are going to a world like that. Uh, and then further on into the constellation, I mean, those kinds of disasters become less common as people get more savvy, but right. uh, that wouldn't prevent the next disaster from happening, which is that um, a cult, uh, you know, in, in the style of, of cults of, of our recent past, you know, whether that's Heaven's Gate or Jonestown, like basically like commits mass suicide. Right. Um, and that obviously is uh, is a major news story uh that like reverberates throughout the constellation um you know and it just you know it just shocks people reminds them that death is still possible but obviously there's not a big lesson to be learned so much as just you know don't join death cults <laughs> which is right you know. right right so i mean the way that they do this technically is like the the leader creates the world and makes death a thing on that world and then everybody goes there and you know either you know kills themselves or kills each Drinks other the or poison whatever. or whatever Drinks yeah. the poison right kool-aid or whatever so um that you know again that's the kind of thing that can happen when uh there are uh charismatic leaders so this will be a cautionary tale but right there's not a particular lesson there other than you know don't be fooled by a by a person like that um so yeah so that's it i mean we've taken you through basically everything that we've got plotted out and now we feel like you know as we we went sort of down the columns this time but if, if we had if you sort of look at this document, we have across uh, each decade, you can kind of get a, a feeling for how each decade feels. You know, the first one is like people groping around in the dark, figuring out this new world. The second one is a kind of, you know, um, advancement or acceptance of this new world that they're in. The third is a little bit of a reaction against that. And the fourth is a little bit of a reaction against that. And, you know, and from then on, it 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 takes on the a more mature quality and, um becomes just, you know, the same thing, but more and more and more until we get to the point where our story starts. Um, so I, I feel good about that. We definitely have a few things we need to go back and, and look into. But John, yeah, but, but like, I, I feel like I have a decent shape. sense of the, the shape of the history of this place we've created. And uh, when we uh, talk to you next episode, we're going to be going deep into uh, plot and character, and that's gonna. There's gonna be a lot to do there, so that's probably gonna be another ten episodes or so of of just figuring out that kind of stuff. Yeah, and, I think. Uh, yeah, I think it makes sense for us to basically try to create our outline at this point. That's right. So that's what uh, that's what you can look forward to next time is uh, we're gonna we're gonna force ourselves to get even more specific, uh, yeah. <laughs> which is hard to do sometimes, but you gotta keep doing it until eventually we have a finished graphic novel for y'all. Yeah. Um. All right, so thanks for listening, and uh, we'll see you next time. Thanks. This has been Constellation, Making the Graphic Novel. Our theme song is Pomona by Audios. To subscribe to this podcast, look us up on iTunes or your favorite podcatcher application. You can find us on Twitter or on the web at constellationpodcast.com. Thanks for listening.